another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview band leader, composer, pianist, Grammy winner, and second generation jazz artist, Tal O'Farrell. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have a jazz legend, Latin jazz legend, I believe six-time Grammy winner, right? Seven. Seven. I just got one for four questions with Cornell West. Okay, seven-time Grammy winner, (laughs) Mr. Arto O'Farrell. Thank you, sir, for even coming on. No, man, what a privilege to be able to talk to you and to talk to the folks who listen to you. Every every single heart reached is 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 moving us closer to uh, understanding one another. So thank you for the opportunity. And I have a lot of questions on your career, your life, second generation jazz artist. I know you have a third in the making. Adam is doing amazing, killing it on the downbeat charts. Funny thing about Adam is his old teacher was my old teacher. So <laughs> who was that? Mr. Warner, Nathan. Oh, yeah, I love Nathan, man. Nathan is, when we talk about artists that I feel never really got the opportunity to shine, he's one of them that always comes to my mind. Oh, he's great. He's a great trumpet player, but more importantly, he's a great person, man. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I have a, I have a other son. People know about Adam because he's the one that's out there. Uh, but my other son, Zachary, Zachary William O'Farrell is in Adam's band, Stranger Days. And he's an incredible drummer, incredible percussionist, and 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 uh, gifted gifted composer and arranger as well. So we got a third generation in the works. So everyone, watch out for the O'Farrell family. <laughs> we just played the O'Farrell family just opened the Newport Jazz Festival. The three of us plus Bam Rodriguez and Victor Pablo on congas. It was it was. Amazing, man. It was an incredible, incredible thing. And the, the the Newport people loved it. They said it was an incredible way to start the festival. So, yeah, you know, I've been playing with, with both Zach and Adam. Uh, I mean, I started playing with them when, uh, to, you know, man, the first tour I did with them was uh, Mount Fuji Jazz Festival. Uh, and I think Adam was 12 and Zach was uh, thir- I mean, 14. You did it as a trio? No, we had Ruben Rodriguez on bass and Roland Guerrero on congas. Uh-huh. Um, it was, it was, they've been, we've been traveling a couple of years, three years ago, we did a tour of Russia with Chad Lefkowitz Brown and Boris Kozlov. I mean, we've been playing together. We've played, we opened, uh, we were headlining the uh, London Jazz Fest. Uh, we, we've been playing together in so many ways and so many times we've been playing together. It's one of the things that people don't know about me because they know that I have the, the big band and I do all kinds of other things. But yeah, the, the, the what we call the family band or what sometimes people call the Arturo Farrell Quintet is doing really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. I got to check into that more. And... Like I say, so is that like a blessing curse? Because there are a few people who came on who their offspring is also performing, like Steve Davis, uh, Nathan East. And it's like, they all say it's an amazing joy. But is it ever like a curse also? Of course. You kidding me? If, look, we all deal with our parents, right? We all, I had to deal with this with Chico Farrell, And my kids have to deal with this with me. Um, there's a strange 
dichotomy of feeling like you're only getting the gig because you're somebody's kid. There's also the strange dichotomy of kind of uh, wanting not to outshine or to shine out uh, your father or mother. Or, so it, there's a lot of like, I remember very clearly that uh, I was really scared, really terrified my whole career to be compared to Chico O'Farrell. And either favorably or unfavorably, or to be, you know, or to or to be accused of having gotten work because of my proximity to him. And so early, 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 early on in the in the game, I totally distanced myself from my father. I started playing in, in you know, with Rashid Ali and free jazz circles. I started I started working with Carla Blay and um, and staying as far away from what my father did as humanly possible. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I leaned back a little bit and kind of uh, started playing a little bit with my father, probably because he was getting older, but also because I needed to work. Um, and then at some point, uh, you know, he did the last of those three records for Milestone. Then he had a real renaissance. And uh, we really started, started, he was, by that time, by the way, he was beginning to lose it, man. He was 70, 60, he was 71, 70, whatever. He was in his 70s when he got that renaissance. And so he was beginning to be forgetful, miscue, and, you know, still the brilliant Chico Farrell we know, but it was really, it began to fall more and more and more upon my shoulders to kind of really run the the band and really take care of business and as and that's so that's painful too is watching your parents go through that process and still be on stage with them hopefully that's not what my sons are experiencing now but um i remember the the incredible moment of 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 of, of clarity what happened is that for i've been a composer my whole life like i've been a composer but i didn't seriously want to compose because that's the thing my father did he wasn't a trumpet player anymore so i was so afraid to be a composer and um winton asked us to do a concert at alice tully hall in the beginning days of jazz and lincoln center and um we did the concert and uh i came home and there was a message on my uh message machine right back then we had machines uh and the message was someone in a in an english accent a fake english accent saying let it be known that you don't have a 40th of your father's talent in fact i foresee you picking through garbage and i so i like kind of went oh snap the thing that i feared more than anything else in my life just happened and I realized that um, not only did I not die, <laughs> not only did not my whole world come crashing into it, into itself, but at least I wasn't the kind of a-hole who goes around leaving cruel messages in people's machines. And somehow that moment really liberated me. And I began to uh, compose, uh, compose, compose, compose. I started to begin to compose a lot. And somehow those mo that moment gave me freedom. I realized I realized in that moment too that not only was I not my father, I was nothing like him as a composer. I didn't think anything like him as a musician. I had a whole field of reference of tastes and music that I listened to that he could not get into. My thing was a lot more. In other words, I really understood that 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 I was not him. Not to be confused, couldn't be confused with him. And the people that insisted on confusing us were idiots. Because believe it or not, seven Grammys later, 
professorship at UCLA, uh, uh, donnery doctorate, compositions right and left, composed commissions. And still there are people who go, yeah, that guy only got there because of his father. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah, I mean. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. That your father has, I get it. But like, yeah, you, you have nothing to prove to those people. At this point, no, but it's funny for me because that's that 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 even without the resume, when I was twenty, I was separate from and so I yeah I understand both my kids, Adam and Zach, are you know they're they're they are master musicians, and as far as I'm concerned, forget about career. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, both of them are master musicians that have super superseded my abilities and skill sets. Whether they have careers and are recognized, to me, that's not as important. They will. I know that. But are they good human beings? Have I taught them to be generous and humble and to be caring towards others? Have I taught them? This is something I've I've been saying to them for, for, for their entire lives. I said, you are not your instrument. You are not your art. Music is not the only thing that matters. In fact, that's a real problem in jazz. You were talking about problems in jazz. Oh, great. This yeah. is one of the ones. This, this is one of the ones. This is one one of the ones that kills me, man. When somebody says to you, "It's all about the music," no sir, no sir, no sir, no sir. It's not all about the music. It's all about your humanity. It's all about who you are and how you treat others, and that's where your music comes from. So if you think it's all about the music, man, you are mistaken, and your music will be shallow. Uh, the elitist and that's, jazz I, and, that, and, that's, and that's what I taught my kids because it's easy it's easy to get sad about not getting this gig or watching someone else get that gig or not the, you know it's just nonsense and then both of them have struggled with this at times in their lives you are not your instrument you're not your career you're not your art form you are a human being and what you bring to your career your art form or your instrument has to come from the riches that you have stored up inside yourself. And that comes from loving others and being at the service of others. So what do you tell your students though? The same thing? I do tell them that, but I tell them, I tell them a lot of things. My students, I tell, my students, I'll tell you one thing I tell my students, which sometimes is really funny. I say to them, do not look to me for leadership or guidance for have none. Do not look to me for truth, for I have none. I have no idea. Listen, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a band director. I'm a college professor. That should make you run for the hills right off the bat. What I do, what I, what I do, tell, what I do tell them is that my job is not to fill your head with information. My job is to get you to be curious. My job is to get you to be confused enough to say, what, to get hungry. That's my job. My job is to give you hunger. My job is to give you confusion. My job is to get you to ask the right questions. So that because if I tell you answers, that's not gaining knowledge. That's just filling your head. Knowledge becomes yours when you evaluate it, judge it, and appropriate it. And nobody can do that for you but you. Okay, so there's one thing on that. So when jazz artists decide they're going to become a professor... Because in some cases, they think it's going to help their career or they were struggling in the actual real world of music. Do you see that as a... How do you see that? Let's go there. I have I've always understood that whether you do it actively or not, you are a teacher. Especially if you're on stage, especially if you play well, especially if you have a public persona. 
And so I never really looked to get into a professorship of sorts. And it never really it just it happened quite by accident. Um, you know, I was uh, I mean, I've, I've subbed teach. I mean, I've taught at Juilliard, UMass, uh, City College, Brooklyn College, Queens College and, you know, on Manhattan School of Music, the new school. I, and I did all these things kind of as a sub adjunct work. Right. Um, because I had a very full, rich recording and performance career, but I really valued those opportunities to teach. I really valued those because it, it, it inevitably at the end of one of those experiences, somebody would come to me and say, man, you really changed my life. That was some of the heaviest, heaviest stuff I've ever heard. You got me to really think, rethink and reevaluate how I feel about this or that. And, 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 you know, and, and, and if you get enough of that, you realize that it's, it's not because you see teaching jazz is not about teaching tertiary or secondary dominance or chord substitutions or Lydian chromatic concept. Teaching jazz is about teaching the brutality of the enslaved peoples and their journey, about the continuing subjugation of black and brown people to the institutionalized racism that exists in this country. Teaching jazz is about saying there is how struggle is dealt with. And teaching jazz, you use notes, you use chords, you use rhythms, you use understanding. But most of all, you show that jazz and the effect that it has had on the entire, all of the Americas, the jazz is about overcoming horrifying brutality and oppression. Now that that's jazz. You, you know, I could I can teach you Coltrane licks and I can teach you blah, 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 blah. But you won't discover it for yourself unless you, you know, what, I'll never forget, man. Well, I took a group of kids down to Cuba. And these were part of our fat cat Latin jazz uh, program that we run out of the Afro Latin jazz lines. Mm-hmm. And we were in um, we visited this fort. Um. And they had a, a, a you know, a, um, a whole room devoted to teaching about slavery. And then they had these shackles, these things that were attached to the legs of the enslaved when they tried to run away. And these things are heavy, 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 heavy. And I watched one young man pick up this thing and a tear came to his eye. And I said to him, see what? It costs us to have this music, the cost to get it to us. See what people had to give up to bring the blues, jazz, hip hop, salsa, whatever you want to call it. These are sacred, sacred peoples from Africa. They brought with them the gift of love. We must never, ever forget that that's part of the jazz story. We must never, ever forget. And you know, it's easy to look at downbeat poles and professorships and all that stuff is secondary to the idea that jazz is not just notes and chords and rhythms. It's the story of a people. It's the story of an integration to a people. And it's the story of a continuing struggle to bring justice to the world, to black and brown communities. Okay. So what do you think happened to it? which caused the popularity in general jazz to go down. Well, jazz musicians used to care about what, the public thought. Now, jazz musicians tend to care about what other jazz musicians think or critics. 
And I think that you can do both. Like there are people who they're, they're it's funny. And me and my sons have this. It's hilarious. I wish you could hear this because we do this stuff where we either talk about the jazz police or the fringe police. Like, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, uh, yeah. we call Taliban jazz and what we call like the crit, like, and, and, and both sides are like so insistent that they're right. You know, like the, 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 the jazz conservatives are like, yeah, man, if you don't swing like this and if you don't play like that, yo, man, you don't, you're not really a jazz. That's not jazz. And the fringe players are like, man, you know, you got to play in 17, eight and 13 keys and have, a, a, you know, and it's like both sides of the fringers are trying to attract more fringers and the upper echelon intelligentsia critics. The conservative jazzers are trying to affirm and reaffirm a nationalist version of jazz, by the way. And they're trying to reaffirm a constructed, institutionalized version of jazz. And so they can't, the, the, the conservatives can't understand the fringers and the fringers can't understand the conservatives. They're both playing to what they think are separate crowds. But what's really happening is they're both playing to a very similar nonsensical value system. And that is we are, we, they're, they're playing for, they're reaffirming for the ones who already affirm them. They're, they're preaching to their choirs. Yes, I agree on that. And to me, and to me, man, yo, nah, 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 man. An artist, take Picasso, for example, an artist is in service to others. When you look at Picasso's Guernica, it's the story of fascism in Spain and the horrors depicted on the people. And and it and it communicates. It communicates so viscerally. I was taken to see Guernica when I was ten years old, and it was on loan to MoMA. And I didn't know from fascism. I didn't know who Franco was. I didn't know Spanish politics, Spanish war, Spanish history. I didn't know nothing. I was just some stupid Mexican kid in New York. <laughs> and they brought me in front of this painting, and I stared, and it tore a hole in my soul. And to me, that's the purpose of art—to liberate to equalize, not to set aside, not to set apart, not to be exclusionary. And so I think sometimes when we, and I'm guilty of it too, when we play a game that says, oh, I want to be so hip, I want to really write hip music, or we go, I'm affirming the values of the jazz machine. We're making a huge mistake because the purpose of art is to serve others. The purpose of art is not to serve yourself. It's about, you're a truth teller, you're a truth journalist. Your job is to speak to the needs of the people. And that's sacred, man. That's a sacred responsibility. And I've, I've tried to, I've tried to model my career on that my whole life. So I, I don't, so I, I can write strange music and I can write mambos. I can write straight ahead swing and I can write uh, in multiple meters. And, you know, I'll use all of that, all of that palette not to ensconce myself in a and perch myself in a specific little tiny no i'm going to use all of that to see the continuum and then to use that to reach people's lives so you know you can do you can look do it like do it like this you know affirm a little mm -hmm. challenge a little affirm a little challenge a little affirm a little challenge a little but if you're so busy playing for the critics and playing to the to to you know that then you're never going to do that if you're so busy playing either either <laughs> Either you're going for them uh, grants or you're going for the critical poll approval or, you, but you know, how many of us, how many of us look into the faces of our audiences and see uh, an opportunity to minister? Well, a lot of them don't have an audience because jazz clubs are A, closing. 
people don't be going. <laughs> Album sales are down, so I kind of have to. You know, I, two weeks ago, I played. Uh, three weeks ago, I played at Birdland. They're back open on Sundays, and we played with the Octet one set. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking through the room, and uh, saying hello to some friends and a, a couple, an older couple. And they stop me and they go. Mr. Farrell, I, I just want to tell you, man, virtual Birdman literally kept us alive during the pandemic. And then I went, Baya, that's what we do, why we do, how we do. We touch people's lives, we're truth tellers, we minister to them. And in return, they give us license to do it again. And we, we keep that gift in motion. Giver becomes receiver, receiver becomes giver, giver's gift stays in motion. It's an infinite loop. A gift cannot be kept. It can only be given, be given away. I mean, a lot of people don't see it that way. And I, I'm telling you, this is a haughty, these are big words I'm using. And it's a daily day struggle to remind myself that, that, that I need to always feel that, keep that in the center of my soul. Like I said, so... You brought that up. Let's go there. So the whole Corona outbreak, and by the way, congrats on Birdland opening back up. It is. I actually thought we were going to lose Birdland. Anyone that listened to the episodes throughout the whole pandemic, I thought they were never going to open up. I still don't think Jazz Standard is going to come back, but that's a different story. The Corona situation. How is that? How did that affect you personally? Well, the the first thing is that. You know, I was out of UCLA uh, and kind of ending my quarter. And and my wife came out because I threw a party for some beautiful folks here that helped make my first year a success. And uh, and the news started coming in. This was the first week of March of 2020. And the news started coming in. And... um, of what was going on in Europe. And of course it was bad. And my wife, it was, she was leaving. And I said to her, cause she was, she's also a professor. I said, don't go. By the time you're landing in New York city, CUNY will be shut down. And sure enough, by the time she landed, CUNY was shut down. Uh, the next day or so, I started getting cancellations. Started getting cancellation after cancellation after cancellation. We were supposed to play in San Diego that weekend with a film panel because we did a documentary called Fandango at the Wall. We did a, we were supposed to do a film panel and a, a, a screening and a concert, and that started getting canceled. Then things started getting canceled. Then Birdland closed its doors. And before I know it, I was looking at a year, uh, like at least a year of cancellations. So I started. I decided to stick it out in uh, in, in Los Angeles because I have a beautiful studio that they provide me, um, just incredible with a host of the recording and uh, workstation and monitors and film scoring, all the programs you could possibly imagine, and that's in a grand piano with nice the whole thing. So I decided to stay here. Might as well be creative. <laughs> I got my wife to come back. And then we got a call from uh, from uh, my son, Adam, who was in uh, in Europe when President Bobotron uh, announced that President Bobotron announced that there would be no travel between the U.S. and uh, 
in Europe. And of course, he, he didn't say that that, would, that didn't affect that didn't affect Americans coming back. But my son was in a panic. I to, you know, three o'clock in the morning, I was buying him the, what I thought was the last ticket out of Spain. And he came back, he came, uh, was in the house for a while. And then you, I could tell he was freaking because he had been traveling around Europe with Mary Halverson and all the Corona hotspots. So I, I could hear the panic in the voice. Somehow I convinced him to come out to uh, Los Angeles where, where he holed up with me and my wife uh, till just till July of that year. And then we came back to New York because my son was getting married. But one of the first things that happened was that I thought to myself, Oh my God, no one's, all the people I love, all the people I love have just lost their livelihoods. They're going to lose their homes. They're, they're going to be able to pay the rent. They're going to go down. This is horrendous. So the first thing I did, the first thing I did starting out right out of the gate is I created a fund. I, I made the first gift and I created a fund called the Emergency Artist Fund. And somehow, don't ask me how, I convinced my musicians to start recording themselves, film themselves recording individually in their homes and then send it into an assembly point where a video editor, a brilliant video editor by the name of Brian Davis and our beautiful sound engineer, uh, Peter Carl, put together a performance, a big band performance. And they, they did this for no compensation. For four months, they did this for no compensation. Eventually, we were able to find a way to compensate them. But not much, baby. Doing one of these episodes, doing one of these virtual Birdland episodes takes, takes me four to five hours. It takes some of that more. And then it takes the people who put it together 30, 40 hours to, uh, to edit, to video edit. 30, 40 hours to engineer a session like this. And so every week we've got literally like 60, 70, 80 hours of effort that we put in to uh, present a virtual Birdland to the world. And in that, in that first five or six months, I think we raised $105,000. And then it may not seem like much in the world of fancy jazz philanthropy, but for us, it was a huge lift. And what gave me the incredible joy was that I was able to give $500 grants to musicians, dancers, stand-up comedians, performing artists. If you were a freelance artist in New York City, you could apply for that grant. And we actually gave, uh, as I said, $105,000 before we switched our, uh, our, our crowdfunding campaign into something that served a, a larger entity than just freelance musicians, though we still support freelance musicians. Um, I mean, the, 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 and, for, and for me, the, the whole Corona experience was um, was filled with terror. I just watched, I, I, you know, the, you know, the drill, bro. We lost Ellis. We lost Bucky. We lost, I mean, we lost, I mean, we lost so many people. We lost Wallace and we lost so many people. Just every freaking week there were people dying that I knew. Every week, there were young people that were dying, old people that were dying. There was young musicians that took their lives. I mean, every it was a nightmare. And then, so you're walking around heartbroken and scared because you don't know what this thing is and how it might affect you. So you 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 know you mask up and you look in the streets and people are scared. They're scared. They're scared. Everybody's scared. And so, for, for, you know, it 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 results in so many different. Uh, uh, 
transformations of your soul. And um, so we just got busy. We acted. We put up that money. Uh, filmed, uh, made a documentary about a shapeshifter. Uh, the Fandango at the Wall sessions. During this whole time, the Fandango at the Wall uh, documentary came out and uh, and was shown all over festivals, uh, you know, virtually. Um, and something happened between me, me and my son, Adam. Me and my son, Adam, have always butted heads um, for various reasons. We've disappointed each other in this, as sons and fathers are wont to do. And but being you know cooped up with him for five months was one of the most sacred experiences of my life. We were reacquainted with each other. We fought like crazy, and then all of a sudden the light broke through, and we realized how little of it was was really structural. How this is just what parents do, and how actually much we love each other. And there's, there's a, a recording that uh, we made for John Schaefer at uh, New Sounds, and um, and in it we play a, a Ruichi Sakamoto piece. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it, but it, it, it's so heartbreakingly beautiful because you can really hear um, a father and a son reintroduced to each other in the midst of a horrifying reality. Um, and, you know, so many things happened. We, we managed not only to survive as the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, which is the nonprofit that I founded. And I got big news for you about that, too. What? Not only were we able to survive, but we, we superseded. And all we were so visible and so many major institutions were invisible. We were so visible. We gave master classes. We uh, created an online presence. We create. We, we birthed an, a, a collective called Audien, and we had online master classes, uh, digital plaza Fridays, virtual Birdland Sundays. Um, we thrived, and did, in fact, and, and did so well that all of our funders, and we're talking about the super A list of funders: the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, the Gilman Foundation, the Doors Do Travel. They're they're all like, "How did you do this?" How did you stay alive? And 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 I can answer that this way. We stayed alive because we had to stand up. We had to stand up in the gap. We had to stand up. And no, we weren't uh, food delivery people. We weren't uh, grocery clerks. We weren't flight attendants. And we weren't uh, policemen and sanitation workers and EMT people. Those are guys are freaking heroes, man. And we were, and, and 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 just as they did what they were called upon to do, we decided we were determined to do what we were called to do, to continue to do what we've been doing since time immemorial, and continue to do. We could have easily disappeared, as many did, but we stayed. We kept the Afro Latin jazz lines going, and um, it's miraculous. So it's it's miraculous, and I'll tell you one thing. It, I I'm not trumpeting my own horn. I mean, these people are my staff and my my musicians, my teachers. Man, they're they're my heroes, man. Sometimes the the, the going got tough, and 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 we, you know, our production director would say, "Well, everybody's tired. Let's just stop." I'm like, no. We continue. We stand up for those who cannot stand up. We will continue until it's absolutely impossible to. And so we did. We did the virtual Birdland this week. We'll be 
virtual Birdman Week 68. We continue to raise funds for teachers, for musicians. We continue to work um, tirelessly to bring this music uh, forth. We, in this in this ridiculous year, man, in this ridiculous year of of, of, of pain and suffering, I managed to release four records. And um, yeah. And, and compose prodigiously. Let's go to that. So you do have an album that's just about to come out. It was recorded well, in the same situation, correct? Well, I, I recorded Virtual Birdland. That came out as an album. That came out as an album. Yeah. Um, and it we just got a, a, a downbeat review. And, and, and much, much to my delight, the reviewer picked up and made sure to mention that this sounds like we were in the same room making music together with joy. So there's a lot of people who think that it's, it's a parlor trick, but it's not. Um, I also uh, made released. Well, re yeah. Four questions came out last year and we won a Grammy for uh, the, the uh, composition Four questions, which uh, is the uh, four questions that W.E.B. Du Bois poses in this book, souls of black folk. And Dr. Cornell West uh, exp exp expounds on this, um, and and and, and we, I wrote this piece so that uh, it would be a vehicle for him to uh, expound upon these four questions. And so we, so four questions. We also re released a film in the midst of all this pandemic, a film called Fandango at the Wall, about a project we did where we went down to Mexico to perform uh, at the border between. Uh, uh, the United States and Mexico, and we had musicians on both sides. And then we followed the lives of these incredible, incredible musicians in Veracruz and get to know the music of Son Jarocho. And that, that was a that was a book, a documentary, and a movie. I mean, sorry, book, a documentary, and a recording. Um, and then I recorded uh, uh, something that called Bronx Banda, which is a beautiful recording that we made that is based on the oral histories of great Bronx residents. And we did something that I love. I love, I love, I've been trying to do this a lot. We did not put together an orchestra on, you know, who knows who and how, who's giving you a gig and how you, no, we did an open democratic audition process and we brought people from disparate universes who would never literally be in the same room, let alone play together. We ended up having an incredible uh, uh, bass player named Leo Traversa, an incredible trombone player named Clark Gain, a wonderful percussionist, Annette Aguilar, um, Juan Carlos Polo on drums, uh, an incredible soprano vocalist, Kayla Pachilongo, uh, uh, Leonor Falcon is an amazing violinist, uh, Juanma Trujillo is an incredible guitarist, um, and, Bronx, and and Baba Israel is our spoken word uh, uh, beat uh, master. And so, I mean, it really is, it's, it's music that I, I, and then we recorded this in the height of the pandemic, we went into Midtown when it was deserted into a studio and uh, and recorded very, very, very strict COVID protocols. Um, but what I really love about this project is that it really is it's a classical violinist, uh, an opera soprano, uh, a, a Venezuelan guitarist, a Peruvian drummer, a jazz trombonist, a funk bassist, uh, myself, and whatever craziness I bring to it, and a beatbox artist. 
So just never in your life will you see this kind of aggregation brought together. But it worked because it was based on love of community. It was based on love of the Bronx and the beautiful people that live in the Bronx. Um, and then this is the big one, the really huge one. I mean, all this stuff is amazing. But um, I was signed to Blue Note Records this, uh, just recently. And uh, wow, it, it, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. You say I'm all like, casual, like yeah, I was signed. Whoa, no, nah, man, it's so deep. It's so deep. It's so deep, man. It's so to me, as far as I know, that never have they had a Mexican American signed to that label. First of all, second of all, it's not even about that. It's about the fact that I'm such an unusual artist, and I, I really do unusual, and and it shows you that I am not the big band Latin jazz guy. It shows you that I'm not the Mambo King. I mean, it shows you that I'm not Chico Farrell's son. It shows you that, and in fact, the music on this recording is deeply beautiful, it's deeply through composed. Some of it doesn't even have traditional soloing. Um, but they are releasing my recording, Dreaming in Lions, on September 24th. And, you know, I've put out, I guess I don't, I don't even know how many records I put out. I put out records with a beautiful label named Zoho Music. Um, and I've worked with Motema. Uh, I've worked with Milestones and uh, Fantasy Records, Milestone Records. Um, and so, but I've basically uh, produced all of those recordings and got the uh, press and the publicist and the put all together, sometimes paid out of my own pocket, man. Sometimes with the help of my beautiful friend, Kabir Sagal, who has raised funds for us to record. And we put out some challenging music conversations. With the conversation continued. Uh, the Cuba the conversation continues. Uh, uh, the offense of the drum. Uh, uh, Familia with uh, Chucho Valdez. And I mean, all of these records have had very specific uh, social political messaging. Which is which is anathema in jazz. Jazz, for the most part, at least now, it's different, or to some degree. But for years, jazz didn't want to have social, uh, uh, political messaging. We didn't want to hear about uh, brutal killings by cops. We didn't want to hear. But if things have changed slightly, I think you know it's, yeah. it's uh, you know. But the messaging, but my messaging has been there all along. So for me to be a socially politically outspoken person. Uh, kind of a Latino, kind of a white guy, kind of a not enough of either to say you're this or that, and kind of like, what are you, a composer or a pianist? What, I what mean, you, I can like, go you on all these, you're in an all, interesting safe spot, if you get what I mean. Yeah, because well, your the, grandparents the, was one nationality, you're a Mexican, you're living in America, playing Latin music, so yeah, but you know, the, it's funny because the, the, the Latinos don't accept me because I don't really do like. Latin music, like mambos and stuff. The, the the jazzers don't like kind of accept me because I'm kind of outspoken politically, socially, and also write strange music. And just in, in just I'm a hard person to target. And quite frankly, I used to hate that. I used to really be I I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't uh, find a home with this group or that group or. And I realized over many years that it, I'm, I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed. I'm Irish, Mexican, German, Cuban, Mexican. I mean, and I'm married to an African-American, Jewish, Native American uh, mixture wife. And my kids, man, they, if you look at them, you're like, wow, what the hell are they? 
And so I realized that that same, that those same mixed up bloodlines that I carry in me, it's the same kind of mixed up bloodlines that I carry in my music. And I don't see jazz. I don't see Latin music. I don't see classical music. I see the continuum, man. I see the connection between Albert Eiler and Steely Dan. I see the connection between Mozart and the Art Ensemble Chicago. I, I definitely see the, I'm sorry, the connection between the Art Ensemble Chicago and Duke Ellington. You know, and I live on that continuum. I'm so grateful that I'm not this or that or the other. And I'm grateful that uh, that I've made my career because now all of a sudden I've landed a blue note. And that says a lot for the label. It says a lot for where it's going. It says a lot for where Don was is going with it. But it also says a lot that, you know, maybe I have found a measure of, of acceptance in this game. I mean, being signed a blue note means, at least to me, that you're literally one of the staples of your time. I, it's a huge honor. Unless, when, like, the only thing I can think higher than that is maybe Columbia or Sony, and I don't think they have any jazz artists currently on their roster. So this is like the pinnacle mountaintop. So yeah, I, well, I say congratulations, and you're just saying, like, yeah, yeah, I signed it with Blue Note. and <laughs> Well, because I, I, always look, I always look at whatever triumphs that I triumphed as a triumph for an army behind me that yeah, you know, I'm 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 part of a, a, a much larger cohort. So if I get to be signed to Blue Note, that's that's a gift for me and my people, whoever they may be. That's a gift for for, for those who who understand that you can be slightly not categorizable, and still succeed. You don't. Have, in fact, I I always feel like the the the, the real messaging is that. Being fast at playing notes or being high-pitched squealing notes or being trendy or being those things you are a dime a dozen. What people I think respond to in music is when someone's really vulnerable and honest and brings themselves shamelessly to their love and to their craft. That's why that's the other thing I tell my students is to, you know, be yourself. But you're also play, talking play. about like jam sessions. Uh, jam sessions, I don't even think of for the fans anymore. It's literally for jazz artists to impress jazz artists. Yep. Yep. So that's, that's the mentality. But you know what? I blame a lot of jazz education programs because uh, I'm going to say something controversial. Yeah, while you work, go for it. Go for it. It can't be anything jazz worse than I said. Or jazz like, education programs are sometimes horrifyingly replicational, nationalistic, and don't deal with the real history of jazz. And they deal, and it's really funny to me because um, you end up seeing a lot of jazz education programs in the Midwest and, 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 and they're really run by the same guy, band director Bill, let's call him. Mm -hmm. Band director Bill loves Basie, teaches them Basie, loves Stan Ken, teaches them Stan Ken. Band director Bill swings his arms while he's directing the band and tells him, you know, tells him to uh, the, the correct sequence of chords and scales to solo from. Band director Bill doesn't have to be black or white, but most of the time he's white. 
band director Bill also has a very national view of jazz. Jazz was invented in America. Band director Bill says that because Jazz at Lincoln Center says that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just went there. <laughs> but I understand, but I don't I don't even think Wynn believes that, bro. I didn't say Winton does. I'm just saying you're going after Lincoln Center. Well, Thank you. you know, that 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 whole that whole like uh what is they call lead freedom swing? That 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 thing is is pervasive, man. What they and so band director Bill says what he's taught to say by the downbeat and jazz at Lincoln Center, and he's replicating the line, the the party line that has been uh, perpetrated from the early days of that institution and before that. Um, but what but band band director Bill doesn't really do. He, he doesn't speak to the horrors of slavery. He doesn't speak to the horrors of the continuing. Uh, economic oppression of black and brown people. He doesn't speak to the nationalized uh, version of jazz, which Ken Burns sold, and doesn't deal with the fact that actually jazz comes from the enslaved peoples of Africa, who also intermingled with the upper northern African, uh, Spanish, Middle Eastern uh, nexus. And so there are elements of all of that in that music. And in fact, jazz is a global citizen, a global uh, reality, a global representation of the migrancy of music. The jazz director Bill won't deal with that because it, it's, it doesn't wave a flag. You can't wave a flag that's global. You can only wave a flag that's national. So jazz director Bill will ignore the music of Peru and the music of Brazil and jazz director Bill will ignore the music of Colombia and maybe even ignore the music of northern Mexico because it's not jazz the way we understand it because it doesn't sound like Stan Kenton or Duke Ellington. But man, the same forces that ended up on the shores, the same enslaved forces that collided with European culture, they ended up all of the Americas, all of the Americas. And most in Europe. So the, 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 this is this is not a simple thing to teach. It's not a simple thing to teach to say, oh, it's a lot easier to say jazz was invented. And by the way, and it's a beautiful, beautiful reality because it, it is indeed African-Americans who gave us this version of jazz. It's incredibly genius that, that, that these elements came to us through this way to what we call American jazz. Great, great great, huge names, sacred names. You must say, when you say Duke Ellington's name, you must say the prophet Duke Ellington, blessed be his name. Okay. okay. When you say Louis Armstrong's name, you must bow your head slightly okay. and say the prophet Louis Armstrong, blessed be his Question name. Question on you on this, okay? <laughs> sure. So why don't we see many minorities, youth, playing jazz, pushing jazz, performing jazz, on pop stream, mainstream levels. You know, it's funny because a lot of the schools that have uh, music programs are that are often uh, BIPOC schools. And BIPOC schools tend to have less funding and less band programs and less musicians. So the feeder system that creates musicians really comes from more affluent realities. Um, and so you end those, so those tend to be white. Those tend to be not minority. Those tend to be, I mean, if you go into, into the hood and you look for a band program, you're probably not going to find one. But if you go into, you know, uh, Lawrence, Kansas, predominantly white, you can find a bitch and big band because the funding is there. You know what I mean? It's not, there's, there's so many things in this nation that could be changed if there was a different socioeconomic picture for uh, communities of color. 
you better believe there'd be a lot more minority, a lot more people of diversity in jazz programs if they were fed that from the beginning, if they were given that opportunity from high school. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the things we don't want to talk about is that, that, that power and funding and elitism all kind of control who gets what. You know what I mean? So we get the, the, these structures of, of, you know, we know we all know about the prison, the school to prison pipeline. It's just, it's just, it is, to me, it's abhorrent because uh, we should develop ways to feed uh, uh, black and brown communities more uh, funding. We, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, you see it, you see it. It's, it's just, it's the same system. Listen, I work for an incredibly elite institution. UCLA is, uh, I think last year we had one hundred sixty thousand dollars, one hundred sixty applic, one hundred sixty thousand applicants for eight thousand freshman spots, mm-hmm. and nobody here, I can guarantee, nobody here is trying to keep minorities out. This is this this institution is poised to become a, a Hispanic serving institution, which is a federal designate and. The ratio of Spanish faculty to students, 56 students to one. So, I mean, and we are we're running through hoops to try and con- recruit diverse bodies. But we're running up against the same thing that so many institutions are. The students that have access to band programs and instruments tend to be from affluent white communities. What does that say? That, that, that we don't want. We don't want to perpetuate the institutionalized racism. We want to end it. In my department, we man, we want to end it. We want to, We want to decolonize the curriculum. To stop teaching 18th century white male European music. Is this? I mean, I can't say that. I love my Bach, and a lot of the jazz stuff comes from that stuff. But no, I no, get no. What you're I didn't saying. say do away. With it. I didn't say do away with it. That's not what I said. Okay, my mistake. Uh, I can on the contrary, on the contrary, you know, I think it's an incredibly important thing. Bach is like great conga drumming. Yes. Bach, Bach is like an Andy Gonzalez bass line reminds me of the best of the counterpoint of Bach. Without understanding counterpoint, you're not going to understand either African drumming or counterpoint. Okay. So, I mean, but, but, but what I'm saying and what we're saying is that there are a lot of other Places for me, a complete musician is someone who understands, loves, and is devoted to Mozart and Indonesian gamelan music. <laughs> you did? No, I so, get that. But what I'm saying is like, it's easier for a person trying to get into. I'm. Let's just say I'm 15 years old. My knowledge of music is just off the radio. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's pretty much pop music like Jojo Cat's is a. Beyonce, or uh, whatever pop artists you know, and rap artists. Okay, isn't it a lot easier for me just to buy a beat or make a beat off a machine, and then rap on top of it versus getting an instrument, learning the instrument, or teaching myself the technique of the instrument, then writing a song, complaining, and you know, and then on top of that, I could just stream it, upload it, and bam, I got followers. 
It's a lot. Yeah, it's no, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that the genius of breakdancing didn't come to people who are Juilliard trained dancers. I, I don't have a problem. I have no problem with that. I'm just saying that at some point you have to understand that we don't do away with creating beats by knowing a little bit about theory and harmony. Right. Okay, uh, Kendrick Lamar is, is, is a person whose musical expression is huge. I mean, like, and his social ex- expression is huge and his political expression is huge using the language of turntables, using the language of violins, using the language of funk and hip hop and jazz, using the language. So, so, so I guess what I'm saying is that for me, the, the struggle in institutions is to learn how to turn out people who are not segmented, that are not siloed. So you could, you get, you could, you could, your career goal could be playing first violin in some major symphony orchestra. You know what? It might not hurt for you to be aware of Indian ragas too. It might make your Mozart better. You know? So you're, 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 you're a timpanist with the uh, Detroit Phil. It might not be bad to experiment with Ableton and learn some beats, you know? It's when people d- declare themselves this or that or the others, when people encamp themselves, when people say, I'm a classical musician, that stuff is not real music. Or I'm a jazz musician. That's, that's where we have problems. And, 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 you know, I think young people are actually the example of what, what we would like to see. They listen to everything, uh, the ones that are hip. But um, I don't know. Okay, so what do you think of the classical artists that can't improvise? <laughs> No matter what the instrument, they can't they, improvise. They cannot improvise on the instrument. Do you say they're not masters of the instrument? Um, I'll answer your question with a question. <laughs> okay. You go to a concert or a jazz club, and you see a master musician, and they're emoting, and incredible notes are coming out of their horn but they're thinking about the blonde in the third row. You go to another concert and someone who is barely able to get out a soul, a sound out of their horn is uh, sounding all raggedy, but they're investing every fiber of their being into their improvisation. Which one is the artist? The one that's thinking about lunch or the one that's investing every fiber of their being into that instrument. The reason I pose that question to you is because, I mean, it's a, it's a really, it's elemental. Classical musicians that can't improvise have missed a huge part of the possibility of the potential for understanding Mozart, huge part of the potential for understanding Bartok. In fact, when I teach improvisation, check this out, bro. I teach improvisation for classical musicians. And one of the things that I do is teach them, I say, this is one of the greatest examples of improvisation that I know. And I play them uh, the art of the fugue as performed by Glenn Gould. I show them. And I show them how he embodies each note 
how each note that comes out of him having been written hundreds of years ago is as fresh as the day that it was written because it is being born again by a person who's so committed to the art of performance and so spiritually committed and imbued that that music is truly improvised anew every time he plays it. Now they look all confused. They go, wow, how can that be? Which is not really making up new notes. And then I show them, I'm not, I don't want to say names, but I show them a, a saxophone player who's playing lots and lots and lots of notes really fast and isn't saying anything. I say, but that guy's making, that guy's making up all those notes right there on the spot. He's starting to repeating himself a lot. But how come this guy's playing notes that were written hundreds of years ago, but it's improvised? And how come this guy's playing notes he's making up on the spot, but it sounds, you dig? It's like, it's, 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 it's important to understand that there's a book, there's a beautiful book by a man named Stephen Nakmanovich called Free Play. And it talks about glumping, glumping, improvisation, improvisation. There's no new notes. There's no new note combinations. Everything that has and can be played will be played. Every sound that has been made, has been, we, are, we are the ones responsible for putting retread material together in fresh new ways. Now, every act, every day, the way you wake up, the way you put your shoes on, it can be an act of improvisation. The way you walk to your job, the way you walk to this corner grocery store can be an act of improvisation. The way you pick, the way you pick your instrument out of its case, the way you tune can be an act of improvisation. And every single second of every single day of your life can be lived anew if you are allowing yourself to be vulnerable if you are allowing yourself to do things differently, if you're allowing yourself to think a new way. So classical musicians uh, who don't openly practice improvisation, meditation, yoga, yeah, I, I think they're going to sound, they're going to they're be competent. But one must one must reach that place in, in one must reach that place in one's playing where you're almost set free from yourself, and that takes a lot of trust. Uh, I could go deeper on that, but I'll ask you something else. Because okay, <laughs> I get you, I get you. <laughs> what is the main tip or advice you would give somebody trying to go into the music fields right now? The, I love this question because it gives me a chance to to uh, to repeat the words of Alan Cummings, the great uh, Broadway actor, who was asked on NPR if he had tips for the young music theater actor, and he said the most intelligent and beautiful thing I've ever said, I've ever heard. He said, "If you don't love your craft, when you're waiting on tables to support it." You're not going to love your craft when you're accepting Tony Awards on stage. And I love that because the, the tip to me is you're a young musician. You're dying to break into the music business. You're dying to make your first recording. You're dying to get your first review. You're dying to get, to, no, die every time you pick up your instrument. Every time you pick up your instrument, you die to self 
and you give yourself to that instrument. And that's, that's, that's the thrill. If you do that enough, if you bring your entire being to the piano, when you sit, you know, when I sit down at the piano, literally every single time for many, 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 many years, I take a moment and I try to empty myself. Every single time, whether I'm practicing, performing, teaching, every single time I take a moment and I go, let me empty now. Empty, empty. Let me let go. Let me let go. So the tip I would give to young artists is uh, love what you do. Love what you do so much that you're not worried about where it takes you. Worry about service to that instrument and worry about using that in service towards others. And I, and I really firmly believe that if you do that, you will become great and you will find gainful employment and you will make it your life playing that instrument. As long as you don't, you know, as long as you're not nasty to people and don't drink or drug excessively, you'll find a way to make a living. You might even have a career. You might even be a star. But that's secondary to the fact that when you sit down before your acts, you empty yourself and say, this is a blessing to be able to play this instrument. Okay, okay. So, first of all, that was brilliant. I'm not going to knock that answer. Better than I expected. <laughs> so, what do you think of those artists that are, I don't want to say complaining, or the person who's like, I can't get a job because I have to focus on the music. And if I get a part-time job or a job to supplement my life while I do this, it's going to take away from my music. How would you respond to them on that? You know, I've had day gigs. I've had day gigs. And I guess I I never really... I never really... I want to be as honest here as I can be. I think it's really easy for me to sit at the perch I'm at in my career and tell people what they should do or not do about having careers in music. But I, I have to confess, I mean, I have had some really rough years. Took a long way to get here. I've been a bicycle messenger. I've been a stock boy. I've been an office worker. Um, I mean, I've done it all. Um, and all along the way, I kind of hated it and knew that it was one more step towards being able to be uh, gainfully employed in the world that I love. Um, you know, that you still got bills to pay. You still got uh, rent to pay. You still got to uh, support people around you. And so um, you get up, you dust yourself off, and you go to work. You take that job and uh, make the best of it. Be generous to your coworkers, and then go home and uh, practice and play, get some gigs. Um, in some ways, I know a lot of people who are happier as uh, not being fully employed as musicians than they, than they would be if they were touring the world. You know, I, I'll tell you something interesting, too. I found this out. I found this out because it's about happiness, right? Mm-hmm. When I was 12 years old, I was a kid studying piano. I was pretty good at it. And I, quite by accident, I, I snuck into my mother and father's record cabinet and found uh, Miles Davis, Seven Steps to Heaven. And uh, when I heard Herbie play uh, his solo, I, I, man, it was like an epiphany. The lights came on, the angels sang, and I said, holy 
If I can play like that, I'll be happy. I'll have found my calling. I didn't say if I have a career, if I have money. I said, if I can learn to play like that, I'll be happy. So I, we didn't have jazz education in those days. So I hung around with some older musicians at a place called Studio Wii, and they taught me this. And after a while, I became a pretty decent jazz band. And I learned, maybe I wasn't Herbie, but at least I learned the language. So I could now play like a jazz pianist. I wasn't quite happy. I figured, well, now I need to, 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 to you know, get some word playing as a jazz pianist. At that point, you know, I was discovered by Carla Blay and started playing the festival circuit in Europe. And uh, I was making a living as a jazz pianist or a musician. And I still couldn't quite find that happiness thing. Then I said, well, let me get some recognition. And I started getting written up about and critics wrote about me. And I still didn't find that happiness thing. I said, I know when I get my first recording, I'll, I'll, I'll feel like I've arrived, got my first recording. Not only did my first recording, which was a, which was a major label recording, not only did I not feel like I had arrived, but I actually started getting a little success. Some people started hating me, so all of a sudden I found less friends. <laughs> um, and so I figured, well, let me get you know, let me get uh, a little more well known. Maybe get an award. I got an award. And, started getting I still couldn't find that still couldn't find that thing that was connecting me to what I felt was happiness success and then man one day I'm like something was, I was you know we got we at this point we'd done three albums with the Afroland Jazz Orchestra and at one point something came over me and I decided that I know what it was during Rudy Giuliani's terror of rain in New York City he um he brought in he started like he started doing away with squeegee men and and, and homeless people and hiding them and he started making uh, uh black and brown neighborhoods gentrifiable and so uh the, the gentrifiers came in and they didn't like the sound of congas in the middle of the night in the park so uh giuliani started enforcing these insane laws uh, that, that prevented people from playing in, 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 in drum circles in the parks. Now, park is one of them. That's true. Right? Noise after park. Yes, I know. <laughs> now, but, you know, if you grow up in New York, one of the most beautiful things in the world is to hear a, 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 a drum circle in the distance. It's just beautiful. I grew up with that sound. All of a sudden I found that drummers were being arrested and their drums confiscated. And I thought this was an outrage. This was incredible. I thought, what is the, what is the point of living in New York? You're de-Newyorkizing New York. And so I, I started coming up with this concept album called The Offense of the Drum. And it talked about the drum as a metaphor for, for communication. Used badly, it's dangerous. Used good, it's powerful. But nonetheless, communication is powerful, powerful knowledge and communication is a powerful thing. And if you use it to manipulate uh, gentrification, it so the whole thing became very social political, and I it, I mean it was like a fire was ignited in me, and I became I wrote this whole thing based on my convictions. I started to feel happiness. I started to feel connected as a musician, and as a composer. And then when the New York Police Department murdered Ramarley Graham. Uh, the police officer by the name of Richard Haste murdered in cold blood a 19-year-old named Ramarley Graham, same age as my son. 
I realized that, that, that there, were, there were horrors that were taking place in society, horrors, absolute horrors. This young man had no drugs or weapons. They just saw him stick something in his waistband. They ran him down, ran into his grandmother's house without a warrant and busted into the bathroom and killed him. And then they have videotape of these cops laughing. And I started looking at society and I started looking at things that really, really were deeply troubling to me. The income disparity between the worker and the stockholder, it, 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 it you know, it, it kept going farther and farther apart, man. So that people like Jeff Bezos can fly into space for 15 minutes or cure world hunger. Like that kind of stuff started really to, like, you just, so I'm, so anyway, so my point is this, and my point is this. The more I marry my feelings and convictions into my music, whether it's abstract or direct, mm-hmm. whether it's abstract or direct, no, I understand. Yes, the hap, the the more not happy, but the 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 more whole I feel as a human being, and so that, you know, in a way that that I also teach that to young people, I I, I also tell them, look find a way to marry who you are with your craft, with what you believe, where you come from, and where you're going. If you play the flute and you just play notes, it's meaningless. But if you tell the story of you, your people, where you are, where you're going, and what you think, then that 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 will make your Bach uh, you know, that will make your Bach that much more incredible. So I think, I think And I'm glad you asked me this question because I think that what I'm recognizing now that we need to do as educators is connect human beings to what they're doing and not turn out music making machines. Okay. Well, this went longer than I expected. I'm enjoying every moment. I would keep you longer, but I try to keep I'm here for you. I'm here for you. (laughs) I know you think I'm crazy. (laughs) No, I don't. It's just that. I'm definitely going to invite you back on. I have your contact, but before we go, you know, I'm going to give a shout out, show respects to the artists who came before us. I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. Okay. On trumpet, Jeremy Gonzalez or Arto Sandoval. Let me tell you. Choose one. For of me. Them. Yes. I'll choose and say something about them. I'll, I'll say something. Choose one and say what? Oh yes, choose us why. Let's tell us why you choose one over the other. Oh God, there's no comparison. I would choose Jerry Gonzalez, who is probably technically a third of the trumpet player that Arturo Sandoval is. Oh, Arturo Sandoval is a uh, no, and that doesn't that doesn't. No, I'm, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying here it is from you. I'm curious. Oh, yeah. Well, no, Jerry is by far 109 million times more creative than Arturo and probably half the trumpet player that he is. Um, Arturo is a freakishly gifted trumpetist. Um, But earlier when I spoke about playing fast, shrill, loud notes, I was thinking specifically about him. Because being able to flex your muscles doesn't mean you have to flex your muscles. Unfortunately, Arturo flexes his muscles a lot, especially to prop up the American imperial imperial machine. And um, and he's very he's an incredibly gifted musician. Um, but 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 the side of 
life, which I love, is the side of poetry and love and clarity. And, and when it comes to struggling uh, to define your art form, Arturo has no compulsion. He'll sit down and play the piano and he'll sit down and play the timbales and all of it loud and fast and shrill. Now, when Jerry Gonzalez picks up his trumpet, he does so in the tradition of Miles Davis. When Jerry Gonzalez picks up his trumpet, he thinks and carefully chooses every note. It isn't just technical repetitious. Jerry also is responsible for really designing the best hybrid of Latin and jazz that has ever taken place. Uh, Ford Apache is an unbelievable group. Ford Apache is one of the true modern groups in human history. One of the first groups to really understand the jazz is not subservient to Latin, it's not subservient to jazz, but the full integration, the seamless integration into those two shows a profound respect for the African roots of all of our music. Whereas I think Arturo still sees one as the other and just bifurcates. And one then he'll play this, then he'll play that. I'm not, I, I think that the seamless integration of the two is mo much more important than identifying one or the other. And there's, it, it you know, Jerry, on top of playing the incredible trumpet that he did, was a master conguero. Now, that's not small that's not just That's not just banging your hands on some skins. Understanding the complexity of Afro-Cuban rhythms, understanding the complexity of Wawanko and how you shape those rhythms with your hands, and really playing the convincing set of conga drums is, is, is he's a real master. So now he's a master musician master trumpet player, master conguero, master conceptualist. He really he really changed. Here's the difference between two. And believe me, I think Arturo's, like I said, he's a freakishly gifted trumpet player. Um, Jerry Gonzalez defined and changed the shape of modern jazz. Arturo is very famous. Wow. Okay, that was... That's why you would know it at one point as a walk-in encyclopedia. I give you that. So, <laughs> on saxophone, <laughs> Mario Rivera or Ray Santos? Oh, my God. You dare not. See, now there you're talking about two sacred names. You're talking about uh, Ray Santos uh, played saxophone, but what he played really was the orchestra. His writing is unparalleled. Ray Santos is... Uh, the preeminent voice of contemporary uh, Latin arranging. Um, and as a saxophonist, I'm not even sure, you know, that he played or got to play as much. Uh, Mario Rivera, though, however, Mario Rivera was my mentor. Mario Rivera was my second father when my father died. I, I gave the eulogy at Mario Rivera's funeral. Mario Rivera was an unbelievable master musician who, as I said earlier, refused to live in an integer, on a metric. He lived the continuum. 
He played with George Coleman's octet. He played with Tito Puente. He played with the Afro Latin Jazz Orchestra. He played tenor, baritone, alto, saxophone, flute, piccolo, vibes, timbales, piano, trumpet. And 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 he, you gotta understand, Mario Rivera was that none of it was fake. Mario could play all of it well. And again, like Jerry, he did he did the incredible honor, the incredible honor of of bestowing uh egalitarianism on all the different roots that he in other words to him uh, playing ta, tabito uh playing merengue saxophone was no less uh meritorious than playing uh, jazz with George Coleman and people like that are rare uh, people who really understand the uh the sanctity of not by not not uh, segmenting who they are, what they do, and Mario Rivera was also prone to uh, living that life too. He said to me once, he said, "Arturo, a good musician must be a cook, a philosopher, a scientist. A good musician must read. A good musician must be interested in life." That's kind of where I got that shit from. Excuse my French. That's kind of where I got that from. A good musician must be interested in life. And I learned that from Carla Blay, and I learned that from Chico Farrell. Curiosity. A good musician is a curious human being. A good musician looks carefully at everything and examines everything. And that, that was Mario. Mario was just, and, and also Mario was uh, just funny sweet never said again like all my heroes i mean i never heard him say you hear a lot of people say cutting things about people you never heard mario say anything anything uh negative towards anybody he didn't like you he didn't like you that's all he didn't have to say he didn't have to cut you down okay on trombone sir steve true or Papo Vasquez. Yeah, you're just trying to get me in trouble, bro. (laughs) (laughs) The difference between those two is is immense. I've played with both those gentlemen. Okay, you don't want to answer that one? I'll let you go on that one. No, no, no. I'll just, I'll just, I'll I'll leave it to say this, that Pablo is a graduate school in, in music. That that, that uh, playing in his band is is basically college. It's basically doctoral level theses. Uh, Papa uh, is Papa has no ability to generate false fraudulent. He will, he's he's the most genuine person I know, and truly one of the great towering figures of um, of my life. And he's the one that really basically. You know, I I knew all this information, but playing with with Papo was like getting given being given uh given, being given my wings. Um, and I played with Steve quite a bit as well, and he's a very fine trombonist. Okay, I won't push on that one. On bass, <laughs> Andy Gonzalez, Chacalo Lopez. Cachao Lopez and Andy Gonzalez. Now you see, now you now you're going in the deep. Yes. I mean, for me, for me, mm-hmm. 
there would be no Andy without a Kachao. So to me, they're extensions of each other. Um, Kachao was the, the 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 voice of Kachao is unmistakable. The the choice he here's where I was talking about the contrapuntal essence of understanding what a bass does. Um, Kachao understood as Andy understood the bass's place. The bass's place is to support the very specific uh, hits that are made on the tumbador, on the, on the conga, mm-hmm. and to dance around the hits, the hits that are made on the other percussion instruments. So a really good bass player, and a lot of bass players lose this function, but Kachao and Andy are the quintessential definition of this function. They know how to connect to the percussion section in a melodic, contrapuntal manner. And in order to do that, you can't, you can't showboat. A bass is not a guitar. A bass has a function. A bass functions as a harmonic instrument and as a rhythmic instrument. And the really, really fine bass players of all time understand that everything is melody. Israel Crosby, Ron Carter, Andy Gonzalez, uh, Charnet Moffat, Kachao, Ruben Rodriguez, Sal Cuevas, they all understand that every note they make has to work within the groove and still be melody. Counterpoint is melody. If you're taught in school how to write counterpoint, you're taught that your counterpoint should also be melodic and singable and make sense. And the great bass players, people like Andy and Kachao, wow. It's like nuclear science, man. It's like, yeah, it's that heavy. Then they know exactly. And, and in order to be able to do that, which Andy taught me, said you must know the pattern, every single pattern, every single instrument is playing in the percussion section. Okay. Well, this one, I got to meet both of them. So I'm just curious. Ray Barreto or Tito on percussion? Wow. I played with both of them too. Um, very different, very different. Both of them are brilliant. Both of them are, are history change, change makers. Um, I'm not going to go with one or the other. I'll just say that they be, they started in the same milieu, and they. But I think definitely Tito came from much much older. Uh, you know, he came from the older school of Latin music before it was called salsa. He really came from the the beginnings of it and, and and created a whole template for what it was going to be. Ray did something different. Ray came from that, did, did his salsa work. And at some point he got, he decided he didn't want to play salsa. He decided he didn't want to, he, he wanted to play. He, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of jazz and jazz musicians. And so in some way, Ray's later work is much more about jazz, but it isn't Latin jazz. It's jazz with a conga integrated into it, which is really different. A lot of people think Latin and jazz are different things. They're not, they're not. (laughs) You know, from the earliest beginnings of jazz, we know that uh, there's the, without the Latin, without the Latin tinge, you can have jazz. You know, uh, there is no Latin, there's no jazz, there's only Africa. The famous quote attributed to uh, Dizzy Gillespie, 
has uh, been always said, when he started working with Chano Poso, um, it he was quoted as saying, I don't speak Spanish, Chano doesn't speak English, but we both speak African. You know, so that element of Latin music, that element of conga, that element of drum, that element of swing, that's all Africa. That's African language. That's African rhythmic code. And so Ray tended to be more the kind of person who would connect with the whole picture, whereas Tito had Tito was a huge star too. And he had done it and made it in a way with very specifically dealing with, with salsa and mambo and very specific Latin music. So he didn't expand in that direction. He had a Latin jazz group. I remember it well because Mario Rivera was in it and Dave Valentin and Hilton Ruiz and, uh, you know, but in terms of, of modern, real modern Latin jazz, I would say Ray Branham was more of a practitioner. Okay. And finally, more mainstream one, Sergio Mendez or Eddie Palmieri? <laughs> Uh, more mainstream, you said? It was a more mainstream artist because, I mean, artists in general, people know them in general. Well, I would say Sergio Mendes is, is, is a huge name that made uh, Brazilian music uh, very mainstream. Whereas I think that Eddie Palmieri is still a, a boutique name that as huge as he is, uh, as huge as he is, he, he is, uh, I, I would not call his name uh, mainstream. He's very identifiable as a Latin or Latin jazz pianist band leader. Um, and, 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 you know, both of those people are sacred. I mean, they both came out with music that, that shaped my life. You know, I'm actually playing on a bill with Tito Puente September 25th at NJPAC. And I'm so like, I'm so in awe of Eddie, I mean, I, I, you know, He's, he is, uh, you know, especially some of his earliest records with La Perfecta are, are records that are literally uh, engraved on my soul. I love his earlier stuff. Like, yeah. You love it. <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty soulful. That's the thing. That's, again, that's the thing about Eddie. There it is. There it is. The whole, the whole thing is that it's honest, soulful, vulnerable music. It doesn't pretend. Well, like I said, without putting you on the spot, thank you for that. Could you please tell the people your social media, your website, where to find you, et cetera? Sure. I can tell folks that my, inst it's all changed a thousand times. My Instagram uh, title tag is at Pianitis, P-I-A-N-I-T-I-S. My Facebook is facebook.com uh, slash Afro Latin Jazz. There's also another Facebook page called at Real Arturo O'Farrell. Uh, my Twitter handle is the same as my Instagram handle, uh, P at P-I-A-N-I-T-I-S, at Pianitis. And I also uh, have uh, three websites which are worthy of, the two websites that are really worthy of note. Um, AfroLatinJazz.org tells you all about the Afroland Jazz Orchestra and the exploits and things that we do in the Afroland Jazz Alliance, including amazing, amazing educational work that we do. Um, we do a lot of things in Afroland Jazz Line. So I please I urge people to check out afrolandjazz.org. Um, and then also arturoferral.com uh, tells you, uh, connects you to the latest projects, the latest touring. And it's all, uh, it's all there. It just, uh, 
find uh, find me. And by the way, I encourage people to contact me and and and, and be in touch. And I, I I really I love I love meeting people who listen to music and people who listen to my music, especially, but people who just want to enter into dialogue. Okay. Well, everyone, it's all to a favor. So thank you for being on. Definitely invite you back again. Privilege. On a very knowledgeable interview. <laughs> See, I always find that funny because I always feel like, wow, I don't know that much. I'm not a historian. I'm not a scholar. I, I appreciate you saying that. Well, everyone, this is Leanna from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care, sir. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>